Welcome to the More Equity Podcast by Harlem Capital. Harlem Capital is a diversity-focused, early-stage venture capital fund based in New York. We're on a mission to invest in 1,000 diverse founders over the next 20 years. This is season two of the podcast focused around people of color and tech. Listen in as Harlem Capital fellow Michael Burbell leads the conversation. Hey everyone, this is Michael Burbell, Venture Fellow for Harlem Capital Partners. Today, I'm talking with Ralph Clark, a CEO connoisseur. He grew up in California with a single mother and was the first in his family to go to college. Over the last 30 years, he's been the CEO of five different companies that have been acquired by Ask Jeeves, WebMD, Upshot, Symantec, and more. In this episode, you'll learn how to operate a business, run high-tech enterprises, and the power of networking. Ralph, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start from the beginning. What's one thing that you still have from your childhood? Yeah, so you prepared me for this question, and thank you for that, because that's a, that's, a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I, I'm going to answer it, uh, optimism. I mean, that's the thing I have from my childhood. I was always a very optimistic uh, child for whatever reason. I continue to be incredibly optimistic, even as an uh, older adult. So tell us more about that then. You grew up in Oakland, California. You know, what was your upbringing like in Oakland back when you were there? My mom was a single mom. Um, She had uh, two kids as a single mom before uh, marrying my stepdad. So a large part of my childhood was really growing up in Oakland as a child of a single female head of household situation. One thing that my mom did, which was really, really fortuitous, I think, for myself and my sister, and then ultimately uh, my brother in Oakland, is uh, we went to parochial schools. And in my case, my parochial school, elementary school and middle school experience, was a school called St. Cyril's. At St. Cyril's, and although you always have, you know, the love and support of your family, having someone outside your family taking a real interest in you and uh, kind of lifting you up in a way is really, really, I think, important to young people, children as they develop. In my particular case, I had a sister, Marcella, who was both the principal of the school as well as my eighth grade teacher. I guess I had her in the fifth grade and I also had an eighth grade. And she was just always, for whatever reason, a, uh, a big fan of mine, I would say. Um, I, I, she liked me the best. Clearly, I was her most favorite student of all time. <laughs> uh, and I, it's funny because we actually stayed in touch over the years. I even took my kids back and my wife to go meet Sister Marcella, who was retired at a convent in the Bay Area. Fortunately, she stayed in the area. And it was always interesting for my kids to observe me with my fifth grade and uh, eighth grade teacher because they, they see how small I would get. I mean, because she was a tiny person. Uh, but I don't know, it's something I would just crouch down and they could actually see a 10-year-old child in their father uh, dealing with this incredibly powerful woman, older woman. I mean, she she must have been, she, uh, she had to be in her late 80s, I guess, when we'd go visit her. I mean, 70s and 80s and the like. And that was, that was really good for me, just being in that environment in the 60s going to a Catholic school in Oakland and having just a a great experience with uh, lay teachers as well as nuns that were primarily responsible for uh, education. I guess free free labor or semi-free labor (laughs) in a way. And, um, you know, I had all the experiences of, you know, being a altar boy, working on traffic patrol, playing sport. So it's a great idyllic uh, environment in which to grow up. And especially in the 60s and 70s, how diverse were your classes at the parochial school, right? Were you one of the only black students? Were there a few? 
how did how do you think that impacted you? So there were a few. Um, I think again, it was in East Oakland where we went to school. And the thing about Catholic schools, even Catholic colleges, I think I don't know. Maybe part of their mandate really is to provide educational resources to more underserved communities. I mean, you look at a number of Catholic colleges. In fact, where they're located, they're located in urban core centers uh, where there's at-risk, underserved uh, communities. And that was also the case, at least uh, in our school in uh, in East Oakland. So we had a somewhat diverse class. I think, as I reflect back on it, I would say probably about 25, maybe 30% of the folks in our school were people of color, be it African-American, Asian, and uh, Latino, Latinx. So yeah, it was a very diverse environment. And you eventually went to college, the University of the Pacific. I did, yes. Where Mm -hmm. you studied economics, right? Just about an hour away from home in Stockton, California. Yeah, and so it allowed me to be away from home, but still close to home. And at the time, um, I, I thought I wanted to be a dentist at the time, uh, but was quickly disabused of that in my freshman uh, year when I tried to take uh, biology and chemistry <laughs> and calculus and expository writing all at the, all at the same time <laughs> against uh, everyone's advice. Um, UOP has a great dental school. They had a pretty nice uh, pre-dent and um, I would say pre-med uh, program, but I learned quickly, and I think that's hopefully what college is about for many folks, is for you to kind of find your internal compass in terms of what kind of things you're good at and what makes you happy. And I definitely found that um, uh, biology and chemistry and calculus didn't make me happy. And I, I think back now and just imagine, and no disrespect for those folks that are involved in the, in the world of dentistry, but I'm so thankful that I wasn't successful doing that because the idea of just being a dentist Versus kind of what I'm doing now would just be, um, I think, quite a waste. So, Yeah, you definitely learned that you didn't want to be a dentist. You know, I learned at, that quickly. <laughs> at the University of the Pacific. How did you learn that you wanted to do something in business economics and eventually move on to IBM? Well, so I didn't know that at the time, but I did in, in that whole kind of, you know, academic GPA fiasco of my first year, I ended up taking a uh, philosophy class, actually. Um, in the uh, winter term. Uh, It was a class called Theodicy, which is the vindication of God in the light of evil. And it goes something like, you know, if God is, you know, perfectly good and all-powerful and all-knowing, how could evil exist in the world? Because certainly being omniscient, he would know about and being perfectly good, he would reject it. And then being all-powerful, of course, he he could reject. And so that that was for me, I think, maybe as a part of my um, high school education, kind of going to Catholic school, kind of philosophy, you're studying Kierkegaard and all these philosophers and the like, a lot of Catholic philosophers. Um, that really appealed to me. I ended up doing really well. So I had this kind of, you know, academic disaster. And then I did, took this class. I got like an A plus. That actually might be something, probably the earliest thing I have from my childhood. I think I have that paper still lying around somewhere. But I ended up getting an A plus on it. And I tell you, that's what my ego needed at that point in time. So then I immediately said, wow, uh, it's not biology and chemistry, it's philosophy. But having been the first person to go to college in my family, I knew people weren't going to be having the idea that I was going to graduate with a degree in (laughs) philosophy. (laughs) That wasn't going to work. So I said, you know, so, okay, I mean, this is kind of a, a, this is something I want to do, but I got to go figure out to do something else. And I kind of got into economics through the back door because I think the very next class I took was like one of these philosophical economics classes, right? I mean, because if you think mm. about the early economists, I mean, they're, they're really philosophers in many ways. So yeah, um, so that kind of got backdoor into that. And I ended up doing really well there. And 
just about the time I guess I just started to mature as a um, as a student. Um, as I started getting more, you know, technical, both on the philosophy side, like, I mean, you know, logic, you know, pretty, you know, that's, it's not calculus, but it's calculus-like, I would say. And then econometrics, which is like more calculus. Stuff. By, the, by the time I started kind of being reintroduced to, you know, math and more kind of hardcore stuff in my, you know, philosophy and economics pursuits, I matured as a student and ended up doing pretty well. I think it's funny because I also got a degree in philosophy and I had okay. the exact same experience where my freshman year, I came in studying neurobiology or neuroscience. I looked at my transcript at the end of freshman year and I think I had a 2.9 and I was like horrified. I, I fared much worse <laughs> than that, but anyway. <laughs> I found the only class where I, where I didn't get like below like a B uh -huh. and it was a philosophy class. So I was okay. like, all right, that's my new major. <laughs> and that's no how kidding. I chose my philosophy major. Of course, my parents weren't happy with it. Luckily, yeah, I'm the youngest of, of three siblings. So my, okay. my siblings were both still pre-med and going to med school and being doctors. Okay. So they they didn't disappoint your parents. You're, you've been a, it's just a terrible disappointment. <laughs> it's, just, it's just me. <laughs> you know, I'm the sad one. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, I think it was phenomenal. And now, you know, I'm working at Microsoft. And mm -hmm. I still find that I use my philosophy degree, especially the logic parts. Yes. Day-to-day -day job. Yes. At IBM, how do you think that your preparation in college, economics and philosophy, you know, prepared you for your one decade at IBM? Well, so I got lucky uh, because at the time I joined IBM, which was the early 80s, um, they were on a hiring spree. Originally, I mean, when I studied philosophy and economics, I thought I wanted to go to law school, but I had to figure out how to make some money first. So, I mean, going to IBM was just originally going to be a two-year pursuit before I applied to law school, because uh, then I went from wanting to be a dentist to an attorney, and I'm glad that one didn't work out either, but, um, uh, uh, and I work with a lot of uh, attorneys, um, and so obviously no disrespect there. They, they, they actually have a pretty interesting job, but IBM was hiring a lot. I was fortunate enough to have an internship somewhere in my uh, college experience uh, with IBM, and that led to getting a formal offer. Actually, I got two job offers. One was to uh, be, uh, and both of them at the time were what was called the data processing division. So this was the division of IBM at the time that sold uh, big mainframe computing, which is almost like a dinosaur relic uh, these days. But there was a time, long time ago, I'll be the old person, like back in the day, um, <laughs> they used to sell these super big computers that sat on raised floors. They were, data, data, they were in data, these things called data centers, very expensive, very bulky. And you had to do a lot of capacity planning around it or whatever. So I was fortunate enough. Uh, so you had that division, you had the mid-range division, and then you had this thing called office products, which at the time had this thing called a typewriter, which is like a keyboard that has these arms and it has these letters and it would physically strike a piece of paper <laughs> for, those, for those of your audience that might not know. I got a, a job offer from the data processing division. Uh, one was to be in Oakland, the other one was to be in Seattle. I had kind of had enough, I guess, of living in Oakland, really wanted to strike out on my own. And I, I had a wonderful visit uh, that one weekend I came to Seattle. It must have been about, it must have been like, you know, 80 degrees outside, you know, the mountain, the trees is green, it was blue with the water. It was like, it was so beautiful. And the weather's nice here in Seattle. It's like, it's God's country. There's no question about it. And the people are really nice. And uh, I said, oh, hey, you know, I'm going to, um, I'll join. This is only for two years. I'll work at IBM. And at the time, uh, this was the time when a company like IBM, especially if you're in the data processing division, they would invest in your training. 
and I mean invest big time. I mean, in the training program was a 12 to 18 month training program. I think I took about 12, maybe 14 months. And it was a combination of you actually going uh, to Dallas or uh, Poughkeepsie and doing what's called these, uh, called SISDM A, SISDM B classes, where you'd be in these classes for two weeks and you come back and then you do a, what's called a branch office period. And you do that back and forth and you might be given a project here or there in the local branch office. And I was fortunate enough to, um, uh, my life is a series of just lucky events that happen and being at the right place at the right time. But joining IBM when IBM was on fire and then joining the Seattle branch office for the data processing division and then being on what was called the Boeing team at the time when Boeing was on fire as a customer. I mean, Boeing, I think, was IBM's uh, probably third or fourth largest customer in the world, um, taking out the government customers. But from a commercial customer point of view, I mean, it was a very, very big, important uh, customer to IBM, which meant it got a lot of resources, a lot of attention and a lot of talent uh, put around. And I was put on that team really to continue to grow and develop. And two years became three years, became four years, being successful, enjoying what I was doing, enjoying living in Seattle and uh, saw a career um, in the uh, technology world at that time, so. So then you left IBM eventually and left the West Coast entirely to go to HBS. Yes, well actually there was a stop in there in between. I'd left IBM to actually Boeing hired me to commercialize some technology to to work on and uh, uh, it was a uh, former IBMer that had been the um, president of Boeing Computer Services uh, that uh, had hired me at Boeing Computer Services and then went to Microsoft and then gave me a job offer for Microsoft actually. This was Mike Hallman uh, at the time who was the chief operating officer. And at that time, I was like, you know, like, I'm not so sure I want to, like, leave the thing I'm doing at Boeing to go work at Microsoft, although I would take the offer. I said, this will be a great time to apply to business school, because during the course of my career with IBM, um, I was um, a high potential candidate is what they call it at the time. So you'd go do these um, kind of, um, I'll call them post-training classes, like the president's class, which was uh, taught by Harvard Business School professors for two weeks, but it was a, it was a class designed by IBM where they send their high potential folks to go to. And I remember going back to Harvard and uh, uh, being taught by Sam Hayes, actually, who's a finance professor, you know, teaching this IBM class because a lot of IBM mainframe sales at the time, it was part technology and operations, but it was also a bit of a financial engineering exercise as well. Because again, these, these systems at the time were like just mammoth investments for companies to make. And on Boeing, um, where I had the uh, lead role uh, in two data centers. Um, it was like, like a, you know, doing a lot of financial analysis was important to be successful uh, yeah. there. So I ended up going to this president's class and really fell in love with the idea of, hey, I, you know, I know I'm not interested in law school anymore, but this is a lot of fun. I want to go to Harvard Business School. And so I ended up applying to Harvard Business School and getting accepted. I only applied to one school and was fortunate enough at the time to become accepted. So that's how I ended up leaving the, uh, the West Coast to live in Boston for a couple of years. And your business school career was, was pretty successful. You got second year's honors. You did research with the legendary professor, you know, Michael Porter. Yes, and yes. So many decades later, now in 2017, um, Mitch Weiss wrote an HBS case study about you. Um, so it totally well, about came our back. company, about, about your company. Yeah. You were the, you were the protagonist in, in the case yes, study. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it came full circle. Um, you know, what, what yeah. was your HBS experience like? Does it still inform your oh, yeah, it was incredible. I, I got to say, um, 
I, I put it on par with, um, you know, my elementary school experience, I would say. I mean, so I have a, really a lot of fond memories of elementary school. You know, high school, yeah. You know, college, okay, you know, but, um, you know, St. Charles was amazing. And then Harvard Business School was pretty amazing, uh, too. Um, I was a older student, I would say at the time, uh, married. Um, the first year, actually, my wife and I were house parents um, uh, in Wellesley uh, for a program called the ABC program, a Better Chance program. And we were basically the house parents for, uh, I think, six to seven uh, teenage girls from New York City that were attending Wellesley High School with the idea that they would compete. I mean, they were obviously very academically gifted. And the idea was to kind of pick up these, you know, incredibly academically gifted uh, kids and have them compete at a uh, public high school like Wellesley so that they would have a better chance of being accepted to uh, very, you know, prestigious uh, impactful uh, colleges, which was, they're enormously successful at uh, doing that. So that was a really interesting experience to uh, be a house parent along with my wife of the ABC program with, you know, uh, young women that were away from home, kind of dealing with what it meant to be away from the Bronx or the Brooklyn where they kind of grew up and be in this, you know, strange world of Wellesley, <laughs> going to Wellesley High School and dealing with all that. And then, you know, just kind of watching them um, deal with the issues of how they navigate it from their Wellesley experience back to their home life experience and, and some of the criticism they would get, you know, from their home life experience when they would go home for the summer or whatever, go home for a, a break, you know, or, hey, you're trying to act a certain way because you've gone fancy at Wells. I mean, it's just, that's a lot to put on a young person, but these kids were just so enormously resilient and talented. Uh, they navigated extremely well, uh, even with a lot of headwind. And uh, uh, so it was really quite rewarding to do that, um, but only for a year, because uh, it, 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 it could suck the life out of you. Uh, and so uh, we did that for a year. And then second year, my wife and I, we moved uh, to uh, Cambridge where we lived and had a, had a just a great second year experience. I had a business with uh, a couple of my classmates. Uh, we did the Cambridge Clothiers business which was a concession where we had uh, made to measure Hickey Freeman suits. I was also working at Lotus Development ostensibly full time my second year and juggling balls in academically the business and uh, working at Lotus, but it all kind of worked out pretty, pretty well. Uh, in fact, my business school um, business partner, one of them is actually our CFO at ShotSpotter <laughs> right now. So we've all- Oh, that's so cool. It's yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. And so. it's so interesting because it, after business school, you went on what I call the decade of soul searching, right? You worked <laughs> at Goldman Sachs, then you went to Merrill Lynch, then Evolve and Inquisit and Direct Medical Knowledge, and then yeah. eventually founded Blue McCoy, right? So yeah. just in this period of about 10 years, you went to, you know, five or six different companies. What were you yeah, looking well, I would say, for? <laughs> so I, I would say one was by design. Um, so I definitely knew out of business school that I wanted to go um, uh, complement my, I, I thought fairly strong, you know, sales and marketing experience I developed at IBM over the years. I really wanted to go um, hard in the paint on uh, finance and advisory stuff and really kind of get exposed to really extend my Harvard Business School education into a kind of a practical work experience. And so no better way to do that than I thought working on uh, Wall Street. Uh, and I was, I was right about that. And for me, almost like my IBM experience, where I thought I was only going to go to IBM for uh, two years before going to law school. I always had the mindset, I was gonna be investment banking. 
um, you know, for, uh, for uh, no more than five years. And I was out in three years because I, I got what I needed from that experience. Um, and so Goldman was a great experience, super talented uh, folks. I, at the time, I really enjoyed living in New York City and working, working on some really interesting projects. I tended to do more technology things just because of my background. Um, we ended up having our first child there and we there's a lot of pressure to kind of move back to the west coast but i still i wasn't done with investment banking yet and it just turned out that you know goldman wasn't going to move me to san francisco but there was a cadre of goldman folks that left goldman to set up a, a technology investment banking practice at merrill lynch which included an opportunity on the west coast so that let us get back to the west coast so that's how that's how merrill happened and then uh so i was there a year and i, I got what i needed in my you know three and a half, four years or so of uh, investment banking between Goldman and Merrill. And then always with the notion I would join a, a high growth, you know, technology companies, you know, software technology. I mean, it kind of went from kind of hardware more to software um, uh, during um, my transition from IBM to business school, Lotus development and working investment banking and was fortuitous enough to meet a person that was uh, uh, starting a company called Evolve which was gonna completely disrupt, uh, at the time we were going for the all kind of enterprise resource planning uh, system, kind of ERP systems. And again, this kind of goes back into the history. I'll sound like an old person. And back in the day, um, you know, you have these enterprise systems where, I mean, for every dollar you'd spend on license fees, you'd spend another eight to $9, like making the license do what you'd want it to do, making the software behave in the way that was reflective of your uh, business processes and the like. It's super brittle, really hard. A lot of these projects were, were, would fail, you know, just spectacularly. I mean, it was really, really quite awful. So our idea was the, to revolutionize that and to basically um, instantiate the application's data and make it a lot um, less brittle and therefore, you know, kind of really shrink down that, you know, eight to nine times uh, uh, services uh, expense you'd have to have for the dollar you'd spend on software. Um, and so we ended up having to be a little bit less ambitious and kind of taking it down to a very specific vertical at the time. When I was there, we we're looking at the HR vertical, because um, again, we were going right at the heart. We we're trying to go at the guts of PeopleSoft at the time. And uh, we were super successful, um, raising a lot of capital, um, uh, getting a just ex exemplary board involved and um, uh, uh, venture investors and, this, and the like, and had done a lot of work on the um, technology. Uh, but it's really difficult when I was there, at least to kind of turn the corner and get it to go to revenue. And then through relationships with one of the first investors uh, in Evolve, they were also investors in another company, basically tapped me and says, hey, look, would you come over to this other company, Inquisit or Farcast at the time, which we renamed Inquisit, and help out in that company because they're, they're, really, they're really struggling. Um, so that's how I went from Evolve to Inquisit, and then we ended up selling Inquisit uh, to Ask Jeeves at the time, and then I, uh, through the same, another investor that was involved uh, at Evolve, they were investors in a company called Direct Medical Knowledge, and they asked me to come into that company and help out, sort it out, so to speak. And, you know, we did that, and I would have been at DMK forever if it weren't for the fact that we were acquired by you know, WebMD, which was then acquired by Healthion. And people asked me about my success, and I said, you know, everybody was successful in the late 90s. <laughs> I mean, it's just, 
<laughs> I mean, and so, and so was I, fortunately. Uh, actually, we ended up doing really, really, really well in that, uh, in that uh, exercise, which helped me uh, have the capital to uh, start my own company, Blue McCoy, which we started. And then we developed this interesting uh, patent. We were going after business, but developed this really interesting uh, patent that um, uh, was uh, interesting by our acquire Upshot at the time acquired us, which was then acquired by Steve Lowe. It's just a, you know, so I'm, I'm trying to be in these things forever and then they just end up getting acquired. I mean, so it's not my fault. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. I mean, one acquisition by Ask Jeeves, another one by WebMD, and then yeah. Corey got acquired. By Upshot, what, yeah. By Upshot. What yeah. did you learn in all of these different acquisitions? So one one aspect of my work at Goldman, which was very instructive, is really understanding uh, what's involved in uh, developing a uh, a strong due diligence package. Because I think when you look at M&A uh, from an acquired point of view, there's a lot of risk in acquiring companies. I mean, and the more you can de-risk it for someone to motivate them to move forward to their corporation or whatever to acquire it, the the more value you're going to get and the more likely you're going to get someone interested in acquiring you because what they don't want to do, um, no one will ever get the credit for making an acquisition that works out really fantastically, but they will disproportionately get the blame if they acquire something and end up finding, you know, garbage in there, like, you know, that their careers could be over. So what you have to do as a potential acquiree, in my mind, is take that risk off the table. And one of the ways you reduce or take that risk off the table is like you're super transparent, very well organized, very detailed about your diligence package. And so my philosophy um, is almost, uh, and just because the nature of the world, vast majority of companies, if they, if they do work out, they work out through an M&A exit, they don't work out because they go public, that's very rare. So you almost have to start with the idea um, if you're going to have an exit where it's not going to be a lifestyle business, um, I start with like building the due diligence package like very early on. Even though people aren't trying to acquire us, so it's like, hey, as we build the business, we're going to spend, you know, 5% of our time with some kind of format around a due diligence package and build the book, build it. And so we can move very, very quickly. Someone says, hey, you know, I think I might be kind of interested. Says, okay, well, here's a data room go look at everything and just have everything super organized, very detailed. It really reduces the anxiety. You know, they're super skeptical. They're like asking you for stuff and people are like, what do you talk about? I understand what you mean. Oh, risk. Hmm. Okay. What's going here. But when you kind of present it to us, like I know more than you do and I can present it away because I have this investment banking experience. It just takes the anxiety out of the question and you have more likelihood to, um, to be acquired. Of course, after what seems like the decade of self-discovery, which really became the decade of acquisitions, you yes. went over to you went over to Ascend Ventures for a couple of years, and you went to Snap Appliance, and then eventually Adaptech. So walk us through. I think Ascend was a really interesting uh, experiment. It was basically a bunch of ex-Goldman guys that said, "Hey, we want to be in the venture business." And I mean, so <laughs> this is just what you did. Now, unfortunately, I think. The real principles of, uh, of Sin from Goldman, they had no real technology background, but they had great investment banking background, but they had no kind of high growth, you know, uh, technology background. That's what I offered as an operating partner. So, um, and I knew that I knew the team. I mean, we'd all worked together at Goldman. We're all African-American. I mean, so it was a, it was a great, uh, it was a great experience. I didn't get bored with it. Uh, maybe they got bored of me, but it, it turned out that one of the investments that they made 
that actually I presented to them was uh, Snap Appliance. And so uh, that was my deal that I brought to the company. And uh, I think it was just very, very clear that like we want to not only provide our capital, you know, treasure, but we want to also provide our talent. <laughs> that was me to say, okay, capital and talent, treasure and talent together, time, you know, we can, we can work it out. So I exited Ascend to take on a full-time uh, CFO role at uh, Snap Appliance. Um, and um, that was interesting. Uh, Snap Appliance was a network attached storage uh, vendor and in uh, the unit volume leader. So it competed at the super, super low end with companies like Net Appliance and more like Microsoft File Server is really the thing that we're going after. Uh, you know, incredibly interesting business, very complicated operationally because the unit volume was high. Um, it was a channel-based play. So you had to sell through the channel. You had to keep track of inventory and sell through and be ready to take returns or whatever. I mean, it was literally kind of tops on bottoms at scale. Um, and so from a CFO point of view, really, really interesting. Um, we were approached by um, Adapt Tech to be acquired. I hit it off with the CFO immediately, again, because I have this design idea of uh, having a prepared due diligence package. And so that got them interested. Uh, we walked them up on valuation appropriately. That was done um, close to a $100 million uh, acquisition. And there, once we were acquired in the process, not only did we have just the basic level of uh, a uh, due diligence package, we went through in, in a very detailed way, described our processes, you know, procure to pay, hire to fire, all the major processes that a business has, just a lot of detail, like who's doing what, what are the, what are the documents that we use to kind of close processes, et cetera. And so when we were acquired by Adaptech, um, and I built a world-class, a world-class uh, finance and accounting team, I mean, World, world. I mean, I have a great team now, and I've worked with other great teams before, but there's no question, Snap Appliance, for whatever reason, three or four people were just like, could go walk and be a CFO anywhere they wanted to. But for, for whatever reason, we all kind of worked together um, at uh, Snap Appliance. So when we were acquired by Adaptech, we basically, although we were the acquisition E, we ended up, the finance organization ended up essentially taking over <laughs> Adaptech. <laughs> to much of the chagrin of the folks that worked at Adaptech. I mean, the CFO loved me. I mean, and he was a very interesting guy, just very, very accomplished and smart, but prickly, had a very tough external user interface. So he was very happy to have me be the external interface. And we just grokked for whatever reason. He was a mentor of mine. Um, and uh, he's currently the CFO of Intuitive Surgical Group now. I mean, a multi-billion dollar market cap company. but. Um, he basically just turned over the keys of the kingdom to uh, the Snap Appliance Finance <laughs> Accounting team. I mean, and we we rocked it. I mean, we were, yeah, we were really good. We we're and that's a very very unusual. But that was that was very very cool too. I really enjoyed that that experience. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Um, so after you know engineering this great acquisition from Snap Appliance to AdaptTech, you eventually left AdaptTech for Guardian Edge. You joined as your COO when they only had 25 employees and eventually became their CEO, led the company to yet another acquisition, um, which was north of $70 million. What were, why did you leave you know, this company where you had just been acquired and were now the VP of finance to go to, to Guardian Edge and operations, a very different role than what you had before? 
Yeah, and I, I tell you, and I was actually leaving a CFO role, a potential CF role, CFO role at AdaptTech because the CFO that uh, I got along with so well, he ended up going to Intuitive Surgical and the CEO wanted to hire me as a CFO. But um, uh, the venture capitalist involved in um, Guardian Edge, Altos Ventures, was the same venture capital firm that did the very first investment all the way back to Evolve. <laughs> And they Very were the same world. investors, yeah, that in, uh, asked me to leave Evolve to go to Inquisit. So this is the wow. third time as a charm. So they're saying, hey, look, we invested in this company. And, um, you know, uh, a slight bone to pick with them, too. I mean, because they were, they were looking for a CFO role. Uh, they were looking for a CEO and a CFO. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, look, I mean, I want the CEO role, right? I think I've deserved that. They were like, well, no, you know, we want to, we want to go to Casting Central, you know, to get our CEO. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll leave that there. But anywho, I say, well, look, I've I've done too much, you know, to just take on a CFO role here. So I mean, I'll I'll do the CFO role, but you got to give me the title of the CEO role. And and along with that, like, if I'm going to be mentoring a first time CEO, right, that is from Casting Central, then you you guys are going to have to give me that that COO title. Because I could see, even though I would try my earnest to make a CEO successful, you know, t- there is a chance that, in fact, that person might choose to leave it or not be successful or whatever. And I think having a CEO role, it'll be abundantly clear at that point in time, because maybe you have to see it this kind of way, it has to be delivered up to you this kind of way, that I should be the CEO. And just like I could predict at the end of the movie, I, that's kind of what happened was, I think, you know, the... The, the CEO, great guy. I mean, we got along really great too. I mean, we had a great working relationship. He was like, hey, you know, I, I can do Casting Central somewhere else and uh, I can be, I, I think he actually ended up going to VMware. I mean, he, he went on some high-flying thing, not as a CEO, but as a senior VP of sales. That had been his background. And we basically had worked at IBM at that same time, although we didn't know each other. Uh, but it, it was always a bit of a struggle for him kind of being a first time CEO in a smaller high growth company versus being the VP of sales at a bigger company. And that he's more built for the, you know, top sales executive in a super, in a larger higher growth situation that, you know, the grinded out, like, you know, in the mud, hand to hand combat kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm more built for that. I mean, the persistence involved with that and just like not getting, you know, not always having wind at your back and wind underneath your wings or wherever. Sometimes, you know, you get knocked down a little bit when you're doing like a startup thing and you got persistence is a, is a feature. I mean, and that's a feature that runs strong in me is persistence, just not giving up. And so anyway, long story short, he ended up leaving. I ended up being turning the CEO and we had a uh, built a really, like I said before, I built a really amazing uh, finance and accounting team. Uh, When I was at Snap Appliance, I was really proud of the senior leadership team that we built at uh, Guardian Edge, you know, from sales to marketing to engineering, product management, et cetera. It's just a great group of folks. And we really, um, cult, company culture was really important to me. That was something I can really focus on now as a CEO, you know, building just a fantastic uh, company uh, culture and um, uh, figuring out, well, I knew our exit was going to be, um, you know, this was probably not going to be a company that was going to go public. Um, it certainly wasn't going to fail in my book and it would probably need to move beyond being a lifestyle business. So it was very clear we would be acquired. So we almost kind of built it to be acquired. Although from my point of view, I thought it was acquired a little bit too soon. I was having a fantastic time being the CEO of the company. But um, when Symantec came knocking, 
you know, we, it was the right time uh, for us to sell and we did. And it worked out and, for the, the investors big time. And last month you just celebrated your 10 year anniversary at Schottsfather. Yes. Probably yeah. the company you've worked at for the longest time in your career. Ever. Strange. <laughs> Strange. <laughs> um, you know, as of, as of Q4, sorry, Q2, um, you know, quarterly revenues were topping $11 million. Um, yep. And you're in over 90 cities. So yeah. what does Schottsfather, over a hundred yeah. cities now. Yeah. Even, over hundred cities. Yeah. Even That's more right. amazing. Yeah. Um, it's the longest job you've stayed at. What does it do and why has it drawn you in for so long? Yeah, well, this was a job I wasn't even really supposed to take. I gotten the, the, a call from a headhunter at the time we had sold Guardian Edge to um, Symantec because my name popped up on, I guess, a screen as having had someone that had yet another successful exit. Um, being born and raised and living in Oakland, I was somewhat vaguely familiar with the technology because Oakland was one of the early uh, customers of ShotSpotter. I knew some people that worked at um, Oakland Police Department. I say, oh, you know, this is a bit of a flyer. I, I'd done pretty well um, in previous uh, acquisitions or whatever, and I thought Guardian Edge really kind of put me over the top. I wasn't even sure I was going to go back to work again, but I was like, you know, let me just go check this out. It's kind of I'm curious. I'm optimistic, curious. I said, let me go. Let me go talk to these guys. I end up meeting the founder, Dr. Bob Schoen, and really just like, I mean, he's an incredibly brilliant mathematician and engineer, but also I would say one of the world's most beautiful human beings that left his very comfortable job at Stanford Research Institute to go apply this technology idea he had because he became concerned about the gun violence issue in uh, the Bay Area. I mean, it's strange as well. It's like, wow, okay, like, why would you do that? I mean, you know, and it's because he wanted to do something. And I was like, why? And he had cobbled together this company. They got some venture capital and, you know, they were, you know, cobbling along, but you could tell that um, they were stalling out because of their, their legacy business model being premise-based CapEx, high, super high price. It was very, very clear that only very well-heeled, very uh, resourceful agencies could afford that. Yet we know the gun violence problem is something so much broader than that. And so, I spent some time with him. I said, oh, yeah, this is really interesting. I see the power of it, but I just, you know, you guys are just going down the wrong path. I'm not sure. I, I don't know anything about law enforcement, really. I, I'm not your guy, but I'm a business person. Let me help you out. So literally, I would come to the company like once a week, then once a week became twice a week. Then I was like three times a week. I said, shoot, man, you guys got to start paying me for <laughs> for this free work that I'm doing. I mean, it's like, well, the offer stands for you to be the CEO. I said, well, look, uh, I've got an idea. It's a fairly radical idea. If the investors and board are willing to back me, uh, back me to completely re-engineer and pivot the business model to go to a long-term greedy, uh, I'll call it, uh, you know, more modern subscription-based revenue where we might be under the hole, so to speak, in terms of um, cash uh, on year one. But if we think we can have this relationship over 10, 15, 20 year, you know, timeframe on a recurring revenue model, this can look really, really interesting. And it'll allow us to grow because now we can go to agencies and not talk about, you know, a million dollar investment, but talk about, you know, $150,000 investment or something like that. That could be a game changer to open this thing up. And I believe, I really do believe once we're in there and start showing the efficacy of this solution, people can't go deaf, dumb and blind to gun violence once we expose it to them. And so maybe because they were really smart or maybe they were partially smart and equally um, desperate, they said yes. I accept it. And we've been off to the races ever since, making a big difference, I think, at least now 100 communities. And my goal is, uh, while I'm here, to be in over 200 cities. So we still have a lot more work to do. 
Yeah. And from my understanding, the way that the technology works is there are acoustic sensors, which mm-hmm. are kind of in cities, on buildings, on the ground, on light posts, you know, a variety yep. of locations. Um, and if there's a gunshot or something that sounds like a gunshot, these sensors will pick it up, right? This raw data is sent to the cloud um, where it's processed with some machine learning algorithms to figure out is that actually a gunshot or not. And it's sent to ShotSpotter's IRC, the Incident Review Center, to be, you know, listened to by humans to see is this actually a gunshot. And then within, you know, a minute, it's sent back to the local police with a GPS location of where that noise or that shot took place. Um, Brilliant. Which I think it's, you nailed it's it. phenomenal, phenomenal technology. Um, what I think is interesting is you led ShotSpotter through an IPO in 2017. It was your first exit that wasn't an acquisition. Um, what yes. was that experience like? It was full circle in a way, because again, I, I think I'd mentioned earlier in my uh, early career post-business school, I worked on a number of uh, initial public offerings as a agent or as a uh, as a banker. And to kind of see it from the seat of a principal, it was, I mean, it was really fascinating. Um, so things that um, I would take for granted as a banker, you know, like going out on the road show. And I mean, literally as the CEO and CFO would kind of pitch the company to potential investors, I mean, as as the banker there, I could literally fall asleep as they did that. It's like, yeah, I, don't, I don't care. I mean, I didn't have to be on, so to speak. Uh, and But I mean, when you're the principal, you have to be on. I mean, and you're you're going through this two week roadshow um, and uh, you're presenting your value proposition as a company to investors. And we're a relatively small uh, IPO at the time. I'm probably not one of many African-American CEOs they've seen in an IPO process. I, I I think, although I think we do fortunately have, and we need more uh, CEOs of uh, technology public companies. I, I don't, I'm only aware of, I think maybe one, two, maybe one, maybe two other CEOs, African-American CEOs that has actually taken a company public in a, in a debut uh, offering. So this was a really, I mean, you could see it on the faces of some of those investors. They just were not used to seeing anything like that. So it was a bit of an educational experience and I'm, I'm, um, although it's not anything I should feel responsible to do, I'm, I'm glad that I was privileged enough to be able to do that, to educate some people, okay, mm-hmm. on the art of the possible and what, you know, what this new world needs to look like uh, in terms of uh, leadership and, and capability. But uh, we had a very successful IPO. We were able to raise uh, capital. Uh, we went public at 11. We're trading twice that, but we've been as high as six times that uh, when the market was a little bit more frothy. Uh, we were able to deleverage, pay off some debt. We now have a public market currency. All of our um, investors now are aligned in the same kind of capital structure. It's all common as opposed to these various levels of preferred. Because when I joined the company uh, 10 years ago, it had raised some amount of capital before me joining. And each piece of capital had slightly different rights and privileges associated with it, which is always very challenging <laughs> to get people in line when they have different interests. <laughs> yeah. And so the nice thing about going public is everything gets flattened to the same. So we're all aligned and alignment is really powerful. I think when you've got so many other dragons to slay, you don't want to have to be slaying it with your, uh, with your ecosystem, and with your partners. And so getting everybody on the same page, really uh, powerful, important, and uh, lets us focus on um, solving helping solve, I would say, the issue of gun violence, which I do want to make a quick comment on that since I've got the mic for a moment, is that, you know, what makes this technology so incredibly compelling is that uh, gun violence is typically associated with homicides. But in fact, gun violence is a lot bigger than homicides. 
especially in and around a lot of our at-risk underserved communities. And the sad thing is, is that, you know, over 90% of incidents of gunfire don't go reported to police for a lot of complicated reasons, most of them having to do with community mistrust of the police. So that means guns are fired on a habitual basis. There's no call to 911. There's no police response, which basically builds the strong business case for community distrust of police mm -hmm. and normalization of gun violence, which has all manner of bad consequences. And that's the thing that, uh, that we're solving. Um, this is phenomenal. Last question is how can our audience connect with you or get involved with your work? Yeah. So, uh, you know, shotspotter.com, www.shotspotter.com. I'm on LinkedIn, link, link in to me. I'm on Twitter, I think as an exec dad, um, hopefully maybe we can post some things on your podcast to let people yep. uh, reach out. We'd love to hear from yep. people, get your feedback on, uh, what we talked about today. And, um, thank awesome. you very much again for having me. Really awesome. appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much, Ralph. Yeah. Take care. All right. See you. Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the Harlem Capitals More Equity Podcast. Make sure to check out all of our other podcasts wherever you get your podcasting for even more stories and advice. To stay connected to all things Harlem Capital, you can follow us on Twitter at Harlem Capital. Until next time, keep building.